Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. Tim O'Brien wrote his latest book, Partly Out of Fear. It's called Dad's Maybe Book. It reads as a kind of guidebook and gift to his young sons because he feared he might not be around when they're older. O'Brien was 58 years old when his first son was born. His second son came two years later. His sons are in their teens now, which means O'Brien himself is in his 70s. The book, For and About Them, is an unusual mix. It's full of loving memories about their years as babies and toddlers, harrowing retellings of O'Brien's time as an infantryman in Vietnam, and life lessons about politics, language, and love. I spoke to O'Brien in front of an audience as part of the 2019 Portland Book Festival. Here he is reading the first chapter of his book. Dear Timmy, a little more than a year ago, on June 20th, 2003, you dropped into the world, my son, my first and only child, a surprise, a gift, an eater of electrical cords, a fertilizer factory, a pain in the ass, and a thrill in the heart. Here is the truth, Timmy. Boy, oh boy, do I love you. And boy, do I wish I could spend the next 50 or 60 years with my lips to your cheek, my eyes warming in yours. But now, as you wobble into your 16th month, it occurs to me that you may never really know your dad. The actuarial stuff looks grim. Even now, I'm what they call an older father. And in 10 years, should I have the good luck to turn 68, I'll almost certainly have trouble keeping up with you. Basketball will be a problem. And 20 years from now, well, it's sad, isn't it? When you begin to know me, you will know an old man. Sadder yet, that's the very best scenario. Life is fragile. Hearts go still. So now, just in case, I want to tell you about your father, the man I think I am. And by that, I mean not just the graying old coot you may vaguely remember. But the guy who shares your name and your blood and half your DNA, the Tim, who himself was once a Timmy. Above all, I am this. I am in love with you, pinwheeling, bedazzled, aching love. And if you know nothing else, know that you were adored by your dad. Let's go back um, a few years from when you wrote that. Um, you write elsewhere in the book that your boys, because you have two sons, uh, delivered joy to a man who once believed there would be no more joy. What was your life like? Before, it's a huge question, but what was your life like, your conception of what the world had ahead of you? 
um, before you had kids. It was a lonely life. I'm a slow writer, and I would spend 12, 15 hours a day at the computer, and I'd spend the rest of the day worrying about whatever I was writing. Are the scenes working? Will people like it? Will I like it? Uh, dialogue, is it working or not? And I was so immersed in uh, my writing that it became the all of me. My self-esteem, my sense of self-love was all wrapped up in how much I liked a scrap of dialogue or a sentence. Uh, this isn't to demean my writing. And I hope my kids will one day read those books and stories long ago. But it is to say that for me, I needed so much more, which was delivered in a really unexpected way. I didn't want to be a father. I fought it with my wife-to-be. We had a huge argument over it, uh, in which we actually split up. Yeah, she thought I was selfish, and I thought she had the heart of a crocodile. <laughs> sort of heartlessly reproductive. And <laughs> you had, it was an interesting debate because I forget the exact words, but it was something like your argument was that she loved something that didn't exist, a, a future child or future children, that she loved that possibility more than what you had together. Yes. What was her response to that argument? Uh, her response was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you broke up. <laughs> she, uh, she'd had a really tough life. Her older sister was committed to a mental institution when Meredith was in 10th grade and remains there today and will die there. Her younger sister was uh, wrapped up in God to the extent that one day she drove her car at 80 miles an hour into a church in Poughkeepsie and suicide. And, Ma and Meredith's mother died young. So with this kind of tragic stuff happening in her family, Meredith had yearned for years and years for a stable, normal, happy, loving family life. And I told her stories about my background, an alcoholic dad whom I idolized. He was fun and he was funny. He was well-read, articulate, intelligent but he also lived inside a vodka bottle. And uh, the late night screaming inside my house, arguments with words like bitch and divorce coming out to a seven-year-old kid made me realize in memory that I yearned for it as much as Meredith. So we, we through six hours in our restaurant talking about our lives, we, we realized that we each wanted the same things. Uh, Did you think simple. that you could that you could create something that neither of you had had when you were little? You came with all these fears, right, or or experiences of of dysfunction. Um, were you scared that you wouldn't be able to create function? Terrified. Uh, Meredith was afraid that she had transmitted to our firstborn Timmy this g crazy gene. Uh, she had escaped it. She was bracketed by these two sisters, one a suicide and the other in a mental institution. And because Timmy didn't stop crying for the first six 
weeks or so of his life. He just didn't stop. He'd cry when he was hungry, he'd cry when he was, wasn't hungry. Cry when he was in his crib, cried when he wasn't in his crib, but never stopped. And we'd keep calling the pediatric nurses and they'd say to us, babies cry, as if we didn't know. <laughs> and they called it colic and they had all these, you know, colic is, is not, it's, it's symptomatic, it's about symptoms, not about causative stuff, like what's causing the kid to cry. And uh, we both felt the, this guilt of bringing into the world Jack the Ripper. And, and, and uh, eventually one day this got infectious. Meredith just started weeping in, outside the boy's bedroom. And I didn't really plan it, I just did it. I put us into a car and we drove to the emergency room of a hospital. And uh, about, I'd say six, seven hours later, we emerged with three prescriptions. Uh, Xanax for me, Xanax for Meredith, and a drug called Prilosec for Timmy. He was suffering from acid reflux. We didn't know this. We were rookie greenhorn parents. We thought we had caused this boy's seeming hatred for the world we were living in. In your defense, the earlier doctors didn't know it either. They didn't take the trouble to look at him until I brought him into the emergency room that day. They just poo-pooed it, put him on top of a, a clothes dryer in, in a little basket. And it kind of worked, but it worked only on Meredith. She'd go to sleep, but the kid just kept, <laughs> kept screaming. <laughs> so uh, that was our introduction to, and it's kind of answering your question, that we've, we felt this sense of kind of... There was also the issue of our crusty, over-the-hill chromosomes, that we were both older parents. And uh, we, we, we therefore assumed a lot of the blame. Um, you write that one of the ways you tried to get Timmy to, to stop crying um, was by singing him first row, row, row your boat, and then pretty quickly just dirty versions of that um, <laughs> uh, to amuse yourself and I guess pa pass the time and try your best to, to get him to sleep or at least stop screaming. Um, and then throughout the book, when, when your boys both get older, that, that phrase, row, row, it keeps coming back. What does it mean to you now? It means, uh, let's say you have a toothache and you pull the tooth, so the ache and the hurt is gone, which is when Prilosec pulled the toothache of Timmy's crying. I, I missed holding that little boy in the dark, making up these filthy lyrics to row, row, row your boat. That um, it was a way of keeping myself sane. It's a, it's a round, and you can't sing merrily, merrily, merrily for six hours without going nuts. So I'd insert my own lyrics, most of them political lyrics that I'd make, you know, sort of going after people I despised. <laughs> but in the filthiest language I could I could do, it's a way of keeping myself there. And I missed it the way you. The tooth is out. You don't miss the pain, but there's something different, which was I, didn't have, I wasn't doing that any longer, holding that boy. And now that the same child is 16 years old, I miss him in kind of the same way. Uh, that it's the teenage syndrome of shutting doors, physically shutting doors to a bedroom, but the, the, the doors of his head keep getting shut. How is school? Fine. How's your buddy Sean? He's okay. It's, you know, it's just monosyllabic stuff coming at me. 
where when he was young, he'd blubber on forever about these things, and that's over now. You describe your life pre-kids as being essentially all about writing, either actively writing or thinking about writing, and to a great extent, that stopped when you had your boys. Did you miss it? No. Um, I had made it because of my own background with my dad. I had made a decision right away when I found out Meredith was pregnant, I was going to quit writing. And I did for 10 years. Um, Why? Because you have to be present as a father, be above all else. If you're not present, what else can you do? You can't discipline, you can't instruct. You can't cuddle and show love. You can't do anything if you're not physically there. And as a writer, as I mentioned a moment ago, I was spending 12, 15 hours a day at a, at a computer and the rest worrying. So I had, to, I had to do it. I'm so glad I did. But I, didn't, I did not miss it because my life was filled almost instantly. It's like having a vacuum and something else is sucked into the vacuum, which is this enormous uh, sense of responsibility for the life of a human being and a sense of love that, that I came on me like, like uh, gunfire. It just was all around me, this only good gunfire, love. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't miss it. I would occasionally jot down little, little messages in a bottle for the two boys. My second son was born two years later. And I would, they were just little one or page two vignettes that I would write every couple of years. And I put them in a desk drawer with the thought that, well, I'm going to die sooner than most fathers. And the odds are really good that when they're in college, they're not going to have a father anymore, and certainly not in middle age. And I wanted to leave behind something of the sound of their father's voice that would come through the vowels and the consonants and the pages of a book, of not a book, but these pages. Uh, one day, when my younger son was about seven, he came into my study, he saw this stack of pages, maybe 30 of them, that later became this book. And he said, uh, what is that? And I said, these are love letters to you. And he said, is it, is it a book? And I said, no. And he said, well, if you wrote more pages, would it be a book? <laughs> I said, I said, maybe. And very, st very sternly, he said, well, you've got to call it what it is. You've got to be honest. Call it your maybe book. <laughs> and and I, I kind of poo-pooed it. I put the idea aside. But later, when he went to bed that night, I was chuckling with Meredith about his suggestion. And uh, she reminded me that every book is a maybe book. War and Peace was once a maybe book until the last period went on, you know, these 600 pages, and every book is that way. And so many books end up at the bottom of a trash can or unpublished. Time and love and passion go into these things, and they end up not being books. Insanity intrudes, heart attacks happen, you lose the desire to write all thing, all kinds of things can make a maybe book into a never book. And I, that struck me. 
And it also struck me that back in Vietnam, I was infected with this kind of maybe-ness thing when every step was a maybe step, every one. We, lived, we worked in an AO, an area of operation that was heavily landmined. And almost, I'd say 85, 90% of our casualties in Vietnam came from, from mines. And Can I stop you there? What is it? What does it mean to um, have one of the deadliest things around you not be a person that you're fighting against, but, but literally the ground? It's horrible. You, your, your, your myth about war is you shoot back at something, but you can't kill a landmine. It's inanimate. It's made out of plastic and gunpowder. So frustration builds up and a kind of bitterness. These guys losing their legs and arms and lives and nothing to shoot back at. And it happened so repetitively. That was my war, essentially. Uh, and that's where the danger my war was. Other soldiers had different experiences in different parts of the country, but that was mine. And that idea of maybe that's my last step, maybe the next one. And that infected me for pretty much the rest of my life, that everything became maybe for me. I couldn't I had a difficulty, and still have difficulty, getting a, a statement out of my mouth without instantly modifying it or qualifying it in my head. It's hard to get rid of that. And now in my old age, I'm 73 now, that maybeness thing is back with a vengeance. When you've got these two young kids, and you're my age, and given what biology is, that tomorrow's maybe. And finally, it occurred to me that we're all leading maybe lives full of maybe tomorrows, maybe not, followed by another maybe tomorrow until the last period is put on that final sentence. So we're all in it. So what had begun as kind of a clever little line coming from Tad uh, made me decide to call the book what it is. There's a bad side to this. The bad side is people think it's a parenting book, which, <laughs> which has bedeviled me now for a month on this book tour. <clears throat> if, if you want to buy a maybe book, there's plenty at Powell's. You can buy a parenting book. They've got tons of them, but don't buy mine because you're going to throw it at the wall. It's, it's not, I, I couldn't advise even myself <laughs> what to do as a parent. It's all trial and error. I sure wouldn't advise you. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> that, that gets to one of the things that you actually, you do want to instruct your kids, though. Uh, one of the things that you, I think it's fair to say, both hate and fear is various versions of absolutism. Um, you write, the bizarre vanity of killer certainty scares me. But how do you teach people, in this case, your two boys, to not be certain about things, to resist surety? I teach them, but I mean, I don't teach them. I try to teach them. They don't always you know, pick up on everything. But I tell them, for example, the word maybe is not immoral. You're not going to get put in jail for it. It's not evil. It's perfectly good word, and so are the words like I think, or it seems to me, in my opinion, the whole, the whole arsenal of 
words that aren't full of this sort of decisive certainty about things, like slam dunk, sort of the opposite of that. And it's to, uh, so I'll, it's not just, my wife does the same thing. We'll stop them if they say, for example, oh, that teacher is just awful. And we'll stop and say, that's a little too certain. And why don't you wait and give the teacher a chance and see if you modify. Oh. And they'll reluctantly, I don't do it. And over time, they start using, it's a language thing, they'll start using language you pick, it seems to me. If, they say, if you say a thing enough, you start using it repetitively. Why are you so passionate about this? Because absolutism can kill people. Literally. people. And has. And I watched it happen for too long in my life. Not just in Vietnam, but all around me. It's a killer thing. And I don't want to be the parent of Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler. <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take Jack the Ripper over. <laughs> over <laughs> and, uh, and then the converse of that, of course, is that I don't want my kids to be the, the victims of absolutism. What, are there any kind of moral absolutes that you do want to give your kids? Well, if there are, I don't know what they are, no. Um, the golden rule, how about that one? Yeah, the golden rule can apply. In, here's, I'll give you an example of how, what a problem with that example. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm, I, that's one I'm, I'm holding on to with my four-year-old and two-year-old. So one day, Timmy asked me, are you a pacifist? And I said, yes. That's an absolutist statement, right? And uh, he said, well, what if somebody broke into our house with a gun and put the gun in my mouth and threatened to kill me? What would you do? And I said, well, I'd try to talk to him first. <laughs> And Timmy gave me this long, disbelieving stare. <laughs> like, like you're, you're my dad, and you're only going to talk to the guy? And so he said, well, what, if, well, what if the guy's really, really, really nasty, and his finger starts to twitch? Would you kill him? And I said, yes, I'd try to. And then he gave me another stare and said, what kind of pacifist is that? <laughs> and I said, the father kind. That's, that's an explicit response to your question that, that there's a, a rule of, I, I value nonviolence and I don't believe in slaughtering people, including children. And that's a core belief that I've had in, since Vietnam that I, runs through everything I've written. Not, I don't declare it explicitly, but I try to display it through story. And yet e there's a, an exception even to that, which is a kind of golden rule, do unto others as they do unto you, is this pacifism um, that's deep in my heart comes from that. And yet there are exceptions, and that's an example of one that I find it really hard to fasten on absolutely, uh, knowing that I've been so wrong in my life, at least as wrong as, as often wrong as I've been right. And I've come to recognize that as probably the only wisdom I've accumulated over my 73 years is 
you're not always right, and you change your mind about so many things. You write about the war at one point in the book. In a way, all these years afterward, it's as if none of it ever happened, but in another way, it's still happening and will never stop. Mm-hmm. You wrote that about, about the entirety of your life, but if you think specifically about your life as a father, how did the war affect you as a father? Well, that was, this is one way. My, my belief in not slaughtering people came out of the war, especially to stop Ho Chi Minh from running through the streets of Portland or dominoes falling and all the sort of reasons that were given for the war. I mean, I'll so often, I'll speak in audiences much like this one, and only they're undergraduates usually at a college, and I'll tear up and talk about, you know, my, what I witnessed and did. And then someone will raise a hand and say, who won? I mean, three million dead people, and the student doesn't know who won. And then another hand will go off, what was it all about? And all that about means dominoes and containing communism, stuff they don't know even know about. And I'll try to patiently explain it all, but in the back of my head, I'm thinking three million dead people, and 50 years later, they don't even know what it was all about. Why all the dead people, if you can't inherit anything from it? My kids get this message, I'm going to your question now, and they get it, though, not in explicit statements like I just gave you, they get it from what they watch is a, when memory of uh, Vietnam intersects with a turkey dinner on Thanksgiving and I'll sort of leave the dinner table in my head and they've come to see that in their dad where I fall silent. Um, what do you think they think is happening when that happens? They think I've retreated in memory to something bad and they're right. Uh, their mom helps them understand this. She's talked to them. I've never really talked to them about what is happening then, but my wife has explained to them that she's been with me a long time, and she knows what's happening. I don't get angry. I, I don't tear up. I go quiet, as so many veterans do. That's the instinct that a veteran has. It's partly avoidance of pain, but it's also, who am I? And how did that happen to me? And why did I allow it to happen? And it's not tragedy exactly, it's remembrance, a kind of solemn, reverent remembrance. Um, much maybe if someone who had breast cancer might 20 years later look back and go silent when the word brazier comes up or some similar thing and fall silent. Not crying, but just into a kind of silence. My kids have recognized that. They call it dad's bad place. And it is. It occurs to me now that, um, as you described earlier, the, the entire kernel of this was you wanted to redress what you saw as um, something that was a huge gap in your life. You wanted to make sure whether you uh, are with your boys or not um, that, that they have, they know who you were, uh, at least on some level. And they have that. There's a 
there's a ton of you in this book, but it also seems like there is hopefully, I mean, th there is a huge part of your experience that, that's, um, that there will forever be a gap, that they will not, I say, and hopefully have that experience. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of that, that there's, there's some deep part of you that no matter what you write or talk about, they will never get that? Well, it's very true. I mean, it's the circumstance that we all face. In a way, I'm facing it right now. My older kid's 16. He's going to go away to college. He's, I'm going to lose him. Fathers lose sons, not just to death. You know, that's not the only way, but when they have to get independent and start driving the car to a theater with a girl and you want to be in the back seat still singing Row Row on that first date, <laughs> you know? And uh, there's that loss that you have when a child goes away to college and gets married. Yeah, you kind of celebrate all these things, the independence, but at the same time, there is a sense of accompanying loss that's part of the human predicament and worth writing about. In the end, what I care to write about are things that all of us experience in one way or another. You don't have to be in a war to know that war sucks. You can, in your imagination, imagine it in your own lives, how time sort of slows down and something bad has happened and you're lying in bed at one o'clock in the morning feeling bad and you look at your watch and it's now after a minute, 2 a.m. and another minute goes by and it's 3 a.m. We've all felt that dripping sensation when we're, when we're uh, in a time of, of uh, introspection. So the, the, the effort I've made through my whole career and tried to make explicit in this book, not just through fiction, but explicit, um, is this thing we all share, whether you're a father or a daughter or a son, whatever you may be, is we're going to share this sense of finality that the world has given us. The chipmunks aren't aware of it. We aren't chipmunks, so it's a gift. It's not a morbid thing. It's, it's human to recognize that the end will be coming and to, in a way, squeeze into what time there is, everything, every, all the love you can. Can I tell one quick little? This is related to what you just you asked. Just, it'll absolutely. Just take me. Does anybody mind if he tells a story now? Okay, you have permission. I feel like I'm in a church. I feel like I'm a minister. It's <laughs> not me. Um, but this isn't. This this is why I trust story. This this is exactly. This pertains to your question. Um, so we were in as a family. We were in southern France. The uh, the kids were then uh, seven and nine years old. And we were staying at this way too expensive resort, way beyond our means. Uh, everybody there looked like George Hamilton. They were all bronzed and tan and movie star looking, rich, bejeweled, coiffed hair, uh, toupees. I mean, it was just um, rich. But good toupees. <laughs> yeah, Gucci. Yeah, <laughs> this is the Gucci. And I looked like this. I mean, <laughs> blue jeans and a baseball cap. So out of place. And my wife and I were outside having a, a drink at an outdoor bar. And we were watching our kids play ping pong at an outdoor ping pong table. And uh, 
the phone rang, my cell phone rang, and I, I answered it, and it was my sister calling to say my mother had died. And I can, as vividly as I can see you right now, and this setting that I'm in, I can recollect this indelible moment of this guy getting that news in a setting that seems so foreign to me in all ways, not just language in France, but the richness and the beauty of the setting, the Mediterranean below, and these, uh, it, the, the immaculate green lawns all around me, and all these figures dressed in you know, white linen and walking around. I felt so Minnesotan as I heard this news. <laughs> I went over to my kids at the ping pong table, seven and nine years old, and I told them my mother had died. And they didn't say much, and I didn't say much beyond that. And for the next two hours, we just played ping pong in this expensive French sunlight around us. The ball going back and forth, much as my thoughts were pinging around. My mom is a young woman, and my mom in the retirement home, and then back to her middle age, and back to her youth, just pinging all over the place. And after two hours, dusk began to settle in. And uh, it got time for dinner. And to avoid the expensive restaurant, we, as a family, went down a long sloping hill into a small village about a quarter of a mile away. And I can still see that purple twilight around us and this, this solemn beauty. And I took Timmy's hand and I said, are you thinking about grandma? And he said, no, I'm thinking about you thinking about grandma. And so much happened inside me, it just happened again for a second, right, a draw breath. I had so misjudged my own kid. I thought he was wrapped up in his little boy thoughts of ping pong balls and Rubik's Cube stuff and basketball, and he was capable, in a way I just didn't recognize, of a thing called empathy, of otherness, caring about what was happening in his father's head, and imagining what his father was thinking about, his own mother. That, in a way, he'd become a better human being than I was. I mean, I used to have this great, as a child, great qualities of caring about others, sometimes crying for other people. Kafka calls this the mankind's frozen sea. And he said that what books are for is to take the axe to the frozen sea inside us. And with that line, of Timmy's, no, I'm thinking about you, thinking about Grandma, it's like an ax kidding into me. That's literature, that's a great line. I would be proud to have written it, it's in my book, but I didn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I had. Um, so it's not a kids say the darndest thing thing, it's way beyond that, it's, it's, it's a heart thing. That's the novelist Tim O'Brien in a conversation in front of an audience from the 2019 Portland Book Festival. We'll have much more after a short break. 
From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. If you're just tuning in, we're talking today with the writer Tim O'Brien. He's most well-known for his stories and novels about the Vietnam War, including The Things They Carried and Going After Cacciato, which received the National Book Award for Fiction. His latest book is A Departure. It's part memoir about being a father and part advice book for his sons. It's called Dad's Maybe Book. O'Brien came to Portland in November of 2019 for the Portland Book Festival. We spoke in front of an audience at the First Congregational United Church of Christ. At one point, I asked him how he approached bedtime stories for his young boys, given that he's made a career as a storyteller. I tried to make them as dirty as I could. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you you wrote your own or you recited your own? I didn't use bad language. I just, I just had farting teachers and thing, things like that. It was, it was, it was a, I had to make them listen, listen. And through, la- through when I got them laughing, I knew they were listening. And was it always in the moment or would you think about them in advance? Always, almost, almost always in the moment. Now and then, as we prepare for bedtime, I think, oh God, I gotta tell a story. What is it gonna be? But I had a stable of characters I had created by that point, and I could draw on their, their uh, personalities to tell these stories. Personality is not quite the, the right word. It was, they had bad habits. Each of them had a different bad habit. And I say, which bad habit am I going to talk about? They were, they were tied to things that I, were, were important to me. Each bad habit was something that one of my kids had. Only I gave the character in the extreme. I mean, they, they had what my kids had, only really bad. Absence of discipline, the characters would have no discipline. Anyway, so it, it, I, I did have something to draw on, which is kind of how it works when you're working on a novel. You've got characters you've established, and as you come to work each day, you can develop the, the habits of those characters and even change their habits slightly and then return to them or complicate the habits we all have. Um, the habit of solitude, the habit of falling in love for the wrong people, whatever it might be, and you can complicate it. And that's what I tried to do with my stories. I trust story in a way that I don't trust myself right now. As I'm speaking now, that's, it's abstract, it's generalizing. Uh, and I, I am amending everything I'm saying. But when I'm telling a story, I completely trust it. It's a, a way of saying, if w- w- no, I'm th- thinking about you thinking about grandma and the setting of it. This got out of, I trust it to carry not just an intellectual message, but to uh, appeal to the stomach and to the heart and to the tear ducts and to the whatever the laugh ducks are, and, uh, <laughs> to the whole human being. I trust a story that way. And that's basically how I talk to try to talk to my kids. If they ask me about Vietnam, I don't lecture them. I don't give them history lessons. I'll tell them a story. You, um, you write a lot about pride in the book, uh, an inescapable part for most parents. Um, and, and you... Ha- seems like you have pretty ambivalent feelings about it, recognize that it's, it's almost universal, but also regret it a little bit. Um, but what, might, what makes you proud of your boys these days? Feel free to brag. Well, they're kind, generous, spirited, uh, polite, nice boys. And as, 
there are things that, how do I phrase, this is hard to phrase. I don't, I don't like or, I never, I never, throughout my whole life, I've really not liked boastful fathers. And I still don't like boastful other fathers. <laughs> so I'm trying to tamp down my boastfulness. Um, can I tell another anecdote? Yes. I'll feel trustful. The last one you, you told was one I was hoping I would elicit from you. So, oh, well, so. you did it. Yeah, I think, well, I, I didn't. Think but you I, just, it, it came out naturally. But yes, please. No, I mean, I, this is, again, I think, directly responsive. So Timmy, uh, when he was in ninth grade, he'd lived and breathed at basketball from the time he was uh, seven years old or maybe even a little younger. He could tell you the name of a, you know, a retired Bulgarian point guard and all his statistics and all he'd done. Uh, he practiced constantly, loved it, the game, and he got really good at it. And then in ninth grade, uh, he was cut from his high school basketball team. He was devastated. It was catastrophic. He came home from school that day. He could barely get the words out of his mouth. I've been cut. And then he went into his room, closed the door, and didn't open it for six, seven weeks. I don't mean literally. I mean, he did come to dinner, but he was silent. Uh, now and then I'd ask him, are you okay? He'd say, I'm fine. That was all, but he wasn't fine. He was mortified. He was humiliated. He no longer could hang out with his old friends. They'd made the team. He didn't. He'd lost his friends. He no longer went to basketball games. He just stopped going. He didn't do anything except come home and close the door. And it went on and on and on. And one evening, I was sitting on the sofa and reading a book, and he came out of his room, his bedroom, and came over to me. And, and he's really tall. He's like 6'2 or so. He's opposite of me. He's tall and really skinny. And a teenager. And he got onto the sofa with me. And he put his arms around me and just cuddled me. Teenagers don't do that. <laughs> Especially tall male teenagers. Um, and he said, I probably wasn't good enough. And I said, probably not. And then he said, but dad, I love you so much. And to have those words come out of the tight-lipped teenage blue just blows away basketball. I mean, it's just that putting a big orange ball in a hole is not as important to a father as those words, but I love you so much. So out of something really catastrophic to him, he's still mortified by it. This is not over two years later. But there's something that came out of it that I was yearning for so much that had vanished since his, when he was young. When he got to those teenage years, the word love wasn't uttered anymore, and kissing got hard to do. He'd sort of look around and make sure nobody was watching, and then, you know, peck me as fast as he could. And uh, that returned. So 
it's a story in a sense, but it's an, it's, it carries with it what I want. You can't say exactly intellectually what, because it's not meant to carry an abstract intellectual. It's meant to appeal to your brain partly, but also to something inside you that I think is human and about all of us. That in one way or another, we all crave love. Maybe the love of God, or the love of a woman, or the love of children, the love of a friend, but we're all, it's what human is, for me, in its essence anyway. And to have it come out of catastrophe is pretty great. How much do your kids know that you think about this? That you think, I mean, because in a sense what we're talking about is death, mm-hmm. right? That's, yeah. that's at the heart of all of this, is the, is the end, is not being there with them. How much do they know that this is on your mind. Another little anecdote. <laughs> so, so when Timmy was 10, maybe 11, uh, it was late at night, maybe 12 or so midnight, and I was reading again on the couch, and I thought he'd been in bed since nine or so, and he had been. He came out crying, and he said, I said, what are you crying about? And he sat down on the edge of the sofa, and, and said, you're going to die, and I'm not going to have a dad anymore. He had seen he, my hearing aids and my gray hair and my face. <laughs> and uh, he, knew, he, he knew that... Uh, that the fathers of his friends were at least a full generation younger than I, at least that. And he'd put this stuff together, he's no dummy, and it made him cry. And he repeated himself, I'm not gonna have a father. And I said, I know, but... And some silence went by and he cried some more and... and, uh, Finally, said he said, "I guess we're going to have to, you know, have some fun together." <laughs> Which is, thank God he worded it that way because I was able to chuckle. <laughs> I think what he meant was, "Let's play touch football until you can't anymore." <laughs> um, they know, and uh, I'm on this month. I'm near the end of this month-long book tour now, and. Uh, really surprising. This is again answering your question. A thing happened maybe two stops ago in LA. A friend of mine texted me. They know how Amazon has these comments you can post, you know, when you rate a book and so on. And uh, this friend of mine texted me and said, You've got to go on Amazon. And I, I, I said, Why? And he said, uh, There's a good surprise waiting for you. So I went on. So my son, Tad, who's uh, kind of the rascal of the family, he'll say anything to anybody about any subject, and it's almost always funny. That, that's what he's about. Exactly the reverse of Timmy, sort of sober and earnest and, you know, gentle. And so I go on Amazon, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a literary, uh, what do you call it, review from Tad. Like, <laughs> that's one sentence long. My dad wrote this book, comma, it's fantastic, should have been a period. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, my, my brother Timmy and I are in it and we do really funny things that I like to recall, sort of run on problem with grammar. 
<laughs> and, and, and some sad things also happen. And I think, well, that comment was made because I'd been, I'd spoken to him on the phone the night before saying how exhausted I was and how depressing book tours are, and some, sometimes humiliating. Probably this is how I'm going to feel when I'm done with this. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he was, he was he, and he knew, I, I, was, I made the comment, I'm too old for this. And he picked up on that, thinking, I'm going to help Dad up a lot, help him out a little bit. And there's one other similar little anecdote, and that is we were watching basketball one night, and uh, it was a Lakers-Celtics game, I think, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, it was a real tight, good game. Tad and I were watching, and he was at the time like eight, I would say, somewhere in there. And we're intensely watching this game, both of us really into it. And then out of nowhere, Tad said, hey, Dad, that guy in the Bible, Methuselah. <laughs> Always a good start. <laughs> How old was he? <laughs> and I, I said, I don't know, maybe a thousand years old. And Tad said, wow, but he was staring at me. <laughs> and, uh, he, uh, uh, so the game goes on, and we get to the very, the, there's like 20 seconds left in the game, and it's like a two-point game. I mean, anybody can win. And out of, I'm just staring at the TV, and out of nowhere, he's sitting over here. He says, what exactly did he eat? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and I know... At the time, I laughed, but again, I, he, I was Methuselah, and, and he wanted to find out if I could, he could keep me alive longer by eating broccoli or whatever that, you know, cauliflower. He's, so he's aware, too. <laughs> Tim O'Brien, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you. That's the author, Tim O'Brien. His latest book is called Dad's Maybe Book. We spoke in front of an audience as part of the 2019 Portland Book Festival. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Support for Think Out Loud is provided by the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust.